Right, um, if you'd like to turn in your Bibles to Luke, Luke chapter 11. Um, So we're going to read from Luke chapter 11, starting at verse 37. Over the last three years at my church, we've been going through a series in Luke. So I've sort of borrowed some of the uh, uh, series that I I prepared for them. Um, But uh, it's exciting stuff, isn't it, to look at the the life of the Lord Jesus Christ. But Luke chapter 11, starting at verse 37. When Jesus had finished speaking, a Pharisee invited him to eat with him. So he went in, reclined at the table. But the Pharisee was surprised when he noticed that Jesus did not first wash before the meal. Then the Lord said to him, Now then, you Pharisees clean the outside of the cup and dish, but inside you are full of greed and wickedness. You foolish people, did not the one who made the outside make the inside also? But now, as for what is inside you, be generous to the poor, and everything will be clean for you. Woe to you, Pharisees, because you give God a tenth of your mint, rue, and all other kinds of garden herbs. But you neglect justice and the love of God. You should have practiced the latter without leaving the former undone. Woe to you, Pharisees, because you love the most important seats in the synagogues and respectful greetings in the marketplaces. Woe to you, because you are like unmarked graves, which people walk over without knowing it. One of the experts in the law answered him, Teacher, when you say these things, you insult us also. Jesus replied, And you, experts in the law, woe to you. Because you load people down with burdens they can hardly carry, and you yourselves will not lift one finger to help them. Woe to you, because you build tombs for the prophets, and it was your ancestors who killed them. So you testify that you approve of what your ancestors did. They killed the prophets, and you build their tombs. Because of this, God in his wisdom said, I will send them prophets and apostles, some of whom they will kill, and others they will persecute. Therefore, this generation will be held responsible for the blood of all the prophets that has been shed since the beginning of the world, from the blood of Abel to the blood of Zechariah, who was killed between the altar and the sanctuary. Yes, I tell you, this generation will be held responsible for it all. Woe to you, experts in the law, because you have taken away the key to knowledge. You yourselves have not entered, and you have hindered those who are entering. When Jesus went outside... The Pharisees and the teachers of the law began to oppose him fiercely and to besiege him with questions, waiting to catch him in something he might say. That's not the end of our reading, but I'm just bringing you up to date with where we are. So that's the context. I wanted to read the context of where we are. Now I'm going to read the actual bit that we're going to, we're going to look at. So um, here we are, uh, chapter 12. Meanwhile, meanwhile, when a crowd of Many thousands had gathered so that they were now trampling one another. Jesus began to speak first to his disciples, saying, Be on your guard against the yeast of the Pharisees, which is hypocrisy. There is nothing concealed that will not be disclosed or hidden that will not be made known. What you have said in the dark will be heard in the daylight, and what you have whispered in the ear in the inner rooms will be proclaimed from the roofs. I tell you, my friends, do not be afraid of those who kill the body and after that can do no more. But I will show you whom you should fear. Fear him who, 
after your body has been killed, has authority to throw you into hell. Yes, I tell you, fear him. Are not five sparrows sold for two pennies? Yet not one of them is forgotten by God. Indeed, the very hairs of your head are all numbered. Don't be afraid. You are worth many more, worth more than many sparrows. So we're going to look at those first seven verses. Tonight, we're going to look at verses 8 to 12. And I'm sorry, I'm just going to tack this on to the end of our reading, just so you know where we're going. Uh, I didn't tell you about this. I'm sorry if it makes up your text, messes up your text stuff. But uh, verse 8, I tell you, whoever publicly acknowledges me before others, the Son of Man will also acknowledge before the angels of God. But whoever disowns me before others will be disowned before the angels of God. And everyone who speaks a word against the Son of Man will be forgiven. But anyone who blasphemes against the Holy Spirit will not be forgiven. When you are brought before synagogues, rulers, and authorities, do not worry about how you will defend yourselves or what you will say, for the Holy Spirit will teach you at that time what you should say. Well, we're going to look at uh, those verses in a, in a moment. Please do uh, open up your Bibles again. Um, Luke chapter 12. We're only going to look at the first seven verses this morning. Um, right, um, so yeah, Luke chapter 12, please do have it open, and I'm going to pray. Father God, we thank you for this opportunity as your people to come to, together on this day. Lord, you know us by name. You know what we're thinking, what's going through our minds right now. You know our struggles and everything that is crowding and crying for our attention right now. But Father, we pray that your Holy Spirit would be so at work amongst us uh, that we would listen to you, listen to your word, and that we would hear you speaking. Father, we don't want to just gain a little bit of knowledge this morning. We don't want to just be able to go away and critique the preacher on whether he was good or not. Father, we want to hear you speaking, and we want to be changed to become a little bit more like Jesus. And so, Lord, we pray that that would happen right here, right now, and we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Well, it's always good to look at the life and the teaching of the Lord Jesus, our Saviour. The first half of Luke's Gospel is about discovering who Jesus is. Um, and his identity is established in chapter 9, verse 20, when Jesus asked the disciples, Who do you say I am? Peter replies, The Christ of God. In other words, the Messiah. Uh, then shortly after, and a few verses later, we read, When the days drew near for him, Jesus, to be taken up, he set his face to go to Jerusalem. Uh, so now Jesus is going to then um, take his disciples from Galilee to Jerusalem. It's going to be about a year before he actually ends up there and, and dies on the cross. Uh, but that is his destination. That is his goal. So they understand who he is, but they don't understand his mission yet. And so he's going to spend this year teaching them about what it involves for him to be the Messiah, and what it involves for them to follow Jesus. So that's the wider context, context of where we are. 
And as Jesus traveled, so did the news about him. He was a miracle worker. He was a teacher. There was no one else like him. And as his fame grew, so did the crowds. And so did the jealousy of the religious leaders of the day. They just couldn't compete with him. And so they tried to discredit him by throwing around false accusations, such as in chapter 11, verse 15, where they accuse him of working by the power of demons. Now, we've read the immediate context here of uh, Jesus was invited back to the Pharisee's house for lunch. And at that luncheon, it got very awkward very fast. You see, they were concerned about outward appearances, about looking good rather than true holiness. They were hypocrites. And their behavior and their teaching, it was actually spiritually dangerous. And so Jesus gives them a few home truths. We read them in in Luke 11.53. When Jesus went outside, the Pharisees and the teachers of the law began to oppose him fiercely and to besiege him with questions, waiting to catch him in something he might say. So that is the, the, the picture here. These powerful religious leaders are out to get Jesus. But as for everyone else, chapter 12, verse 1, so we've got to our passage now, chapter 12, verse 1, meanwhile, when a crowd of many thousands had gathered so that they were trampling one another, Jesus began to speak. Can you imagine that? The crowds are so big that it's dangerous out there. They're like crushing each other. Can you imagine what it would be like if people were crowding to try and come into this church? Can you imagine? It's like, crowding, queuing up. The, I mean, there's queues up the, the Hook Road, isn't there? But that, sadly, they're not all trying to come in here. But that, that's what they were doing. They, they wanted to be near Jesus. Crowds, thousands. I wonder how the, the disciples would feel as they emerged from the house where the lunch was. Thousands of people out there. Was there a cheer when the disciples emerged? Yeah, perhaps it's like when a celebrity emerges and all the fans and photographers are there and you know, the flashes are going off like Beatlemania in the 60s. I don't remember that because I wasn't born, but some of you might. You know, maybe this is Jesus mania. There's thousands of people that want to see him. <coughs> what a thing to be in the middle of all that euphoria. Perhaps the disciples broke out into a little smile, enjoyed the, the, the feeling of reflected glory and popularity. But the danger is when... When people love you, it's a good feeling, isn't it? And, and you like that. We, we like to be loved. And, and you don't want to let them down because you think, oh, this is good. And, and if it's popularity that we crave, they will have a power over you because you don't want to lose their applause, do you? But Jesus takes all of this in his stride. And he chooses this precise moment to start, to start speaking to his disciples about hypocrisy. Why? Because Jesus and his disciples, they're not always going to be this popular. And they're not to be seeking the applause or the approval of men. What people think about you, it is important, actually. It is. It does matter. But what matters most is what God thinks about you. So let's look at that in our first point. Live an authentic life. Live an authentic life. Hypocrite isn't a particularly nice word, is it? Certainly, certainly not the kind of word you whisper into the ear of a loved one. Oh, my, my darling hypocrite. Its origin um, is from a Greek word which means actor. And in those days, actors would wear masks um, to cover up their face and enable them to play the part. So it's not hard to see why this word came to mean something uh, which you weren't uh, playing a part. You're not genuine. Now, this is what the Pharisees were doing. 
pretending to be God-fearing and righteous men, but despite their respectable outward appearance, their hearts are far from God. And this is what Jesus warns the disciples against. Verse 1, be on your guard against the yeast of the Pharisees, which is hypocrisy. I love the smell of freshly baked bread. I guess most of us do, don't you? You're baking the bread or you go into Sainsbury's or Tesco's and you smell the bread aisle and go, oh, that's good. We've got a bread maker at home. It's never been that successful, to be honest. But I do know that to get it to rise, you have to put your leaven or your, your yeast in there and, and then it slowly it works its way through the bread and, and then it, it, it rises. You get your, your, your bread at the end of it. Now, in the Bible, yeast can be used as a, a positive metaphor, but it's often used negatively, and the yeast Jesus is warning about is this hypocrisy. And it's a real danger. It's not theoretical. It's a real danger for his disciples. That's why Jesus warns about it. Beware or be on your guard against it. Don't be like them. Don't pretend to be something you're not. So the Pharisees, they, they like to pray long, grand public prayers. They liked to make a show of how spiritual they were so they could impress everybody. They wanted to, to let everyone know they were fasting and how much money they were giving so that everyone would look at them and go, wow, aren't they good? Aren't they spiritual? All oh, those Pharisees, what, what amazing men they are. They were motivated by the applause of people. Perhaps the big crowds that are following Jesus of what motivates Jesus to deal with this issue of hypocrisy before it becomes a problem for his disciples. And we, we need to be aware of this, lest we're so concerned with how we look on the outside that we forget about the inside. Because if we're not careful, not only do we end up fooling others, but we can actually end up fooling ourselves as well. We start to think, yeah, I'm a pretty good person, actually. Not like those people over there. I'm, I'm pretty righteous. Yeah, I've, I've got this together, haven't I? And the result is, when we start to become self-righteous, we stop confessing our sin. And there's no repentance, no confession, no humility. And if that is us, there's, there's no forgiveness. Hypocrisy keeps us from dealing with the real issues in our lives. We can hide behind that mask. We hide behind it before others, and we can hide behind it before ourselves. It's dangerous spiritually for us, and so Jesus warns against this. Be on your guard. And you, do need, you need to look good because you're good, not because you're pretending to be good. We're called to be holy, but not to pretend to be holy. Sadly, I think we all know the charge of hypocrisy is often laid against the church, you know, people say, oh, it's just full of hypocrites. And sometimes we can't deny that, can we? We are all sinners, aren't we? Uh, we're not denying that, hopefully. We, we are sinners, saved by grace alone. And we're still sinners, even though the Lord is changing us day by day. And he does that because he's not finished with us. We haven't arrived. We're not perfect. So we should all be being changed. And the truth is, none of us are what we should be, is it? So I am a sinner. I let myself down. I let other people down. I let God down. To my shame, I do. And I say things that are pretty awful, actually. And that's why we're here, though, isn't it? Not because we're a bunch of 
people who have finally made the grade. I, I don't know about you. I'm here because I need Jesus. I need Jesus. I need his forgiveness and his transforming spirit. I need him to be at work in me day by day to make us what he's called us to be, holy. So we're not to pretend we're perfect when we're not. That's hypocritical. But why do we do that anyway? I think it's because we're terribly concerned about what each other thinks about us. You know, we want their approval, don't we? We come to church and we want people to say, oh, yeah, that Matt is a, is a jolly nice fellow, isn't he? You know, we like that. We want their admiration. And so, you know, we're aware God can see my sin, but somehow I'm, I'm okay with that. Just don't let anyone else see it. And that's the point of verses 2 and 3. There's nothing hidden that will not be disclosed. So that gossip, that slander, how unkind you were to that person, how impatient you were, how you coveted in your heart, who you looked at, what you did in private, it's going to be proclaimed from the rooftops. It's going to go viral. Everyone will know what you and me are like. So we can pretend to ourselves, we can pretend to others, but we can't pretend before God. We will be shamed for what we are. I wonder if you're happy about that. I'm not sure I am. So what can be done? Well, this is a call to walk in the light, to walk in God's ways and not just pretend to walk in the light. Because the trouble is we can become quite comfortable with our own sin, can't we? We get used to it. It sort of moves into our life and we pull it up a chair and we tolerate it, we excuse it. We become comfortable with it. But actually what we need to do is we need to take action. We need to put to death whatever belongs to our earthly nature, Colossians 3.5. There is a fight to be fought and it's not to keep up appearances. It is a fight to authentically follow Jesus so that our lives match our profession. And when we do sin, which we will, we need to confess it and turn from it. And you know what? The good news of the gospel is, 1 John 1, 9, he will forgive us our sins. He will cleanse us from all our unrighteousness. And thank the Lord for that. There is cleansing and forgiveness. Proverbs 28, 13, whoever conceals their sin does not prosper. But the one who confesses and renounces them finds mercy. Isn't the gospel good? Isn't the gospel good? If you renounce your sin, if you confess your sin, you will find mercy. But if we're constantly trying to project this false facade, we're constantly going to be fearing being found out, aren't we? Or worrying about one group of friends meeting up with the other one, and then they'll know what we're really like. Do you see how damaging that is for your testimony, for your witness, for the Lord Jesus? If you are not who you really are with one group, and then you're someone completely different with a different group. You know, they might say, oh yeah, Matt, he's a Christian, but do you know what he's really like at work or at school? And he says he's a Christian. <clears throat> Hypocrisy, it's, it's a joy killer. How can we sing our songs of praise? Oh, thank you for my sins forgiven, I worship you. And we know there's these guilty secrets inside. Do you see, it's, like, it's, a, it's a joy killer, isn't it? It's a peace robber. You think, I'm, I'm a Christian and yet I'm doing all this thing. I'm not living as I should. It's a peace robber. It robs you of your assurance. 
It's a strength sapper, trying to keep up looking good in front of everyone else and thinking, who did I tell that to? And trying to be someone else. It's, it's, it's just exhausting. But you know, brothers and sisters, when we live an authentic Christian life, we have nothing to fear. When we're honest with ourselves and others and God, there's mercy and there's help and there's forgiveness. And, and when people say, oh, so being a Christian doesn't mean you're perfect. It means you're a sinner forgiven by the grace of God. It means that God is at work in you, changing you day by day to make you what, what he's called you to be. I get it now, because that actually matches what, what, what you look like. So let's not crave the admiration of people so that we pretend to be something we're not. Let's acknowledge our sin. Let's seek his mercy, seek his help to actually follow Jesus for real. I wonder if there's someone here who needs to stop pretending and get real with Jesus this morning. But secondly, if we're to be the real deal, we need to make sure we're not wasting time living for the wrong people. We need to fear God and not man. That's our second point, fear God and not man. Some people can be a bit scary, can't they? Maybe they're scary because they're physically intimidating. Maybe they're scary uh, because they are intellectually um, overbearing and they just, you know, they're just so on a different level and they're like, oh. Or maybe they're just verbally aggressive and you think, oh, you know, they're a scary person. Or, or maybe they can scare us because they've got a power over us. Your boss at work, um, you know, they've got the power to change your life. They can fire you or hire you. They can give you a promotion or not, give you a raise or not, um, or make your life easy or, or hard. So we can be scared and intimidated by all sorts of different people. Now, bearing in mind the disciples have just seen Jesus be the, the recipient of a full-on verbal attack from the religious elite, they might now be thinking, well, I'm glad that wasn't me in Jesus' sandals right there. Jesus seems to be popular now, and yet he did have a bit of an attack there. Maybe things, maybe there's a storm coming. Maybe things are not always going to be easy following Jesus. And it wasn't going to be easy for them. Most of the 12 disciples were killed for following Jesus. So the danger Jesus is warning about them here is not theoretical. There will come a time when they will have to choose, right, am I going to die for following Jesus or not? That was the choice they're going to have to face. This isn't theoretical for them. This was a real warning Jesus is giving them. So how could Jesus equip them to deal with this before they got there? How have Christians throughout centuries not been hypocrites and not forsaken their Lord, even when it's cost them everything? And how can we face up to scary people when they challenge us about our faith? Well, Jesus starts to remind them um, in verse 4, Do not be afraid of those who kill the body, and after that can do no more. Now that might not sound like much of a comfort to us, most of us need our bodies, and we're probably quite attached to them. Um, we might wish we could go and upgrade them and get a new one as they wear out, but we can't, can they? You know, you get the body, and that's what you get. And then at the end of your life, well, it's not quite what it was at the beginning of your life. But, um, so we're, we're quite you know, careful with what we do about our bodies. We spend a lot of time and effort and lotions and potions and exercise trying to keep them going. But Jesus' point is that all these these, these attackers can do, the, the vicious thug, the vindictive person, the person you thought who was a friend who betrays you, all they can do is, well, they can make you suffer horribly, horrendously, but that suffering is limited. 
Once they've killed you, and that's bad enough, isn't it? But once they've killed you, that's it. They can do no more. Now, Jesus isn't saying we're to imagine that physical torture and punishment and, and suffering is easy or light. That's not what he's saying at all. He's putting it into context. Jesus' point is don't fear them because their power is limited. There's someone with greater power whom we should fear. Now, there's different types of fear, isn't there? There's a bad fear that can imprison us. And there's a good fear that can free us and even empower us sometimes. So, so the parent running back into the, the burning building, driven by uh, their love and the fear of losing their loved child. They, they, you know, wouldn't you do that? Your child is stuck in a building. You love them. You do not want to, 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 to lose them. So the fear of losing them, it drives you to do what is humanly bonkers. That's a good fear. A healthy fear stops us jumping off a cliff because you think, well, I don't want to die. So there's a good fear there. A healthy fear stops us driving too fast or touching a hot kettle. Some things are good to be scared of because they're painful and dangerous. So fear protects us in that way. And Jesus is saying the healthy, the good fear is to fear him who has the power to throw you into hell. Just to clarify, that's not Satan. Satan doesn't have power in hell. Satan and his demons, his angelic followers who have fallen, they are going to be in hell. The powerful one Jesus is referring to is God himself. So yes, to fear God is a good and right thing. How, how so? Well, if we fear him, it ensures we're going to be take, we'll take him seriously. It ensures we we'll want to be on the right side of him. And that's, that's a good thing. So I know the fear of God is it's not an easy or light subject. It's quite hard to, to, to process sometimes. But it's important. Because as true and as great as the mercy of God is, the grace of God, the faithfulness of God, the love of God, and all those other things is, we can be, I think, guilty of domesticating God. Even Christians can be guilty of trying to remake God into the God we want rather than the God that he is. And we think, well, I, I'm a bit uncomfortable with, with that aspect of God, so I'm just going to ignore that bit or change that or twist it somehow. The truth is, God is perfectly pure. God hates all sin. God is perfectly wise. He's perfectly just. There is no higher court to go to. So if God finds you guilty, there's, there's no court of appeal. But the good thing is, with God, there is no miscarriage of justice. There's no need, because he gets it right, because he's perfect. He knows all things, everything. But the tragedy is, is that I am guilty. I'm guilty. I am the sinner before God. Maybe I am quite a good person, actually, I'm better than those people down there and that person and that person and that person. There's always someone worse than you. But the comparison is not between me and them. The comparison is between us and God. And before a perfectly holy God, I am guilty. I will be found guilty. And the punishment is eternal hell. And that puts those who can merely kill the body in, in their place. There is someone 
greater we should fear. Hebrews 10.31 says, The Lord will judge his people. It is a dreadful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. The Lord will judge his people. It is a dreadful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. People say you shouldn't try and scare people into heaven. Um, But equally, it's not loving, is it? Never to warn them about hell. I don't know if you've ever felt the weight of your sin before a holy God. I don't know if you've ever had that realization that without Jesus, I am heading to hell. I don't know. Maybe sometimes at night, I wake up and I just, I think hell is such a scary, horrible place. And the fact is, we should be scared. We really should. If we're not in Jesus, we should be scared. That is an appropriate reaction to hell. We should be terrified of hell. We should not rest one moment until we know we are on the right side of God. If you wake up in the night and there's some sort of conviction of sin gripping you and there's a conviction about hell and you're fearing it, if you've ever been in fear for your soul, don't rest until that's sorted. So what do you do? you realize that you are a sinner before a holy God the good news is you don't have to go to hell you don't have to go there you don't have to be afraid of that anymore this is why the fear of God is a good thing because I tell you what the fear of God does it drives you to Jesus now when we appear before God or when we come before God we don't stand there Um, protesting our innocence, saying, I'm a good person, God. We don't stand there pointing the finger to other people and say, yeah, but do you know what they did? That's not how we come before God. We don't play the victim saying, oh, my life was, was just so unfair. I didn't have the chances that they had, and my life was hard, and I, I couldn't help it. Now, we stand there like a child who's stolen some chocolate, and it's all around their face, Yet we stand there in our sin and we go, yeah, I'm a sinner. And so rather trying to pretend before man and God, we we flee to the cross of Jesus. We plead his mercy and we say, have mercy on me, a sinner. That's the prayer you pray. Have mercy on me, a sinner. Have you ever prayed that prayer? I pray quite often, to be honest. Have mercy on me, a sinner. So the fear of God, it leads us to the cross. And do you know the fear of God, it keeps us at the cross. We dare not think, well, I'm okay now. You know, I've got this. I've got it from here, Lord. I'm just going to carry on. No, it's only because of his lavish grace and his mercy and his love that we can escape his righteous wrath. And so I will stay near to the Lord, whatever the costs. Won't you? I can't stray away from him. I'm going to stay with him. So just as a healthy fear of heights protects us from going too close to the edge, a healthy fear of God takes us to where we can be saved. And as we stand there, washed by the blood of Jesus, under his wing, under his protection, declared not guilty, should we abandon our saviour because a mere man insults us or threatens us or hurts us? No, the fear of God, it helps to subdue the other fears that come along. It drives us into the safe and strong arms of our Saviour. And that's what our loving God wants. He wants to save us because we're precious to him. And that's our final point. We are precious to him. 
you've ever been a mum or a dad um, here, um, perhaps you can remember it can be tiring trying to keep your little ones safe, can't it? Perhaps you always feel like you're going on at them. Um, you know, don't do that, don't do this. Mind the road, you know, hold my hand. And they get to that age where they don't want to hold your hand and you're gripping it because you know it's dangerous. Don't put the stone in your mouth, darling. It's, it's, it's not food. And they, you know, they're just like, ah. And you're always going on at them, trying to keep them safe. But, and you can feel like a nag. But why do you do that? It's because you love them, don't you? You love them and you want what's best for them. So you warn them. And Jesus here is speaking in this hard and scary way because it's the most loving and kind thing he can do. You warn people you care about, don't you? But what Jesus is keen to make sure we don't miss is amidst all this scary talk about hell and fear and, and everything else is that the, the, the God who holds our eternity in his hands, the God who flung the, the stars into space, the God who is the source of all life, the God who is all-powerful, who sees everything, who knows everything, the God who will call all people to account for what they've done in perfect justice. It's this great God in the person of Jesus who, in verse 4, calls them my friends. My friends. He's telling them this. Because they are his friends. They and we are precious to him. A few months ago, I was um, taking a, a meeting. It was a Christian Union meeting at a rather posh private school. And um, it all went well and everything else. And I, I parked my car on the, the posh grounds of this school. And I was walking back to my rather bedraggled looking car that looked out of place. And, and then um, I had a friend that worked there. And uh, he noticed me. And he was up in one of these buildings with these lots of steps leading up to it. He was saying goodbye to some important looking people. And he saw me from across the courtyard. And um, he just sort of quickly said goodbye to his friends. And he trotted down the steps and sort of jogged towards me. And he flung his arms around me um, in front of all the staff and the kids and everyone else. And, you know, I'm a bit awkward with, with hugs. I'm like... <laughs> um, but suddenly, I went from being this unimportant random stranger to the person that the deputy head was hugging. And I felt honoured. I felt important. And, you know, the deputy head is nothing compared to the God of the universe. To those who come humbly to Jesus, he calls us friends. Isn't that stunning? We're rebel sinners. Yet he runs towards us, throws his arms around us, and calls us, my friends. Isn't that what the parable of the lost son teaches us? It pictures and amplifies the father running to his returning undeserving son, and he throws his arms around him and kisses him. God warns us because he cares for us. My friends. And just because God is so great and so powerful, just because God is eternal, and just because he's told us not to be scared of those who can hurt us physically, it doesn't mean God is unconcerned with our lives and the pain and the suffering which we endure. Look at verse 6. Are not five sparrows sold for two pennies, and not one of them is forgotten before God? 
we might not be used to buying and selling sparrows, but we, we get the point, don't we? They're so cheap, they're almost worthless. It's like, they're nothing. It's like a bag of carrots, you know? It's like, it's just nothing. And yet God never sees people as worthless. We might not be worthy, but we're not worthless. And Jesus' argument is, God even cares about these worthless birds. So how much more does he care about you who are worth more than many birds? In fact, he cares about you so much, he knows how many hairs are on your head. They're all accounted for, each one. By the way, the average person has between 100 and 150,000 hairs on their head. That's a lot of hairs to number. I didn't know that blondes apparently have around 150,000 follicles, and I think it's redheads have only 90,000. So um, there's a difference depending on your hair color. It's fascinating, isn't it? And some of you might think, well, I haven't really got many hairs left on my head, but actually there's going to be a few still there. They might be very small and thin and small. But... And the point is, I've no idea how many hairs are on my head. No idea. But God knows. And so God knows more about me, more about you, than you know about yourself. This is the thing. He knows more about you than you do. That's how precious you are to him. He knows more about you than you even know. And believer, he knows and cares about all those little details in your life, down to the very last hair. So when you call for mercy and you throw your lot in with God, when you decide, I'm going to trust him, I'm going to take the flak, I'm not going to give in to my fear of people, he knows you, he knows all about you, he knows your situation, he knows your joys, your suffering, your worries and all those things, and he calls you his friend. And desires to save you for all eternity to be with him. And that's why he warns you this morning. Because you're precious to him. So Jesus says, fear not. If you're friends with the one who holds your eternity and loves you like that, you don't need to fear man, do you? You don't need to be living in fear, worrying about what people think about you and say about you and what they're going to do to you. Anything people do to you, it might be painful, it might be scary, it might be very difficult, but it is only temporary. But your relationship with God is for eternity. So I hope you can see now how silly it is to live a life just trying to impress people. Living for the approval, the applause of people, so that you end up doing things you didn't want to do and pretending you're someone you're not. No, this is who you are. This is who you are. You are precious to God. He calls you friend, he warns you about the dangers of hell, he calls you into a healthy fear of God, and that drives us into the strong arms of our Saviour. So it's time to stop pretending. It's time to learn what it really means to be a God-fearer. Let's be quiet before the Lord for, for a moment. Father God, you know our hearts You've seen how we've been reacting, those thoughts, those struggles, those fears, those sins, all those things. Um, They are all before you. Father, we pray that you would convict us of our sin. We pray that you would have mercy upon us, for we do not deny we are sinners. But Father, we thank you that in the Lord Jesus Christ there is complete forgiveness. Every stain is washed away. Father, we thank you that we are in your hands. We are precious to you. You call us by our name. You call call us friend. We thank you that we are adopted into your family. We are the children of God. 
So Lord, we thank you that in Jesus, there is complete forgiveness. There is now no more condemnation. And we don't have to fear hell. We don't have to fear you in that cowering, fearful way. And yet we fear you in that respectful, reverence, loving, awesome way. So Father, I pray that you will work in our hearts to behold our God, to delight in you to be genuine, authentic believers so that we can follow you with open and and honest hearts. And Lord, so that we can worship you as we should. For you are great and you are God. So Lord, we thank you and praise you in Jesus' name. Amen.